dodges I ride in this wind On my good horse I call you My shiny black bear When, 25 years ago, I argued that Foucault assumed the existence of something, namely power, along the lines along which, after 1840, the idea of energy was socially constructed for the physical world, and power being something metaphorically corresponding in the social domain, people considered me evil, David. The recognition that we cannot help but renounce power, not because of a Gandhian or Christian spirit of renunciation to violence, but because the power which we sought 10 or 20 years ago reveals its own void, its own illusory characteristics. I want to suggest the possibility of seeing it at the end of an epoch, just like the Roman Empire, at the time of Augustine, and as an entirely new access, credibility, ease of moving into the world of conspiration, knowing that it can't be contractually assured, insured. A renunciation to ensure You're listening to episode 743 of Unwelcome Guests. Abandoning wage slavery and the illusion of social power. I'm Robin Upton, and we've just heard from Ivan Illich. That was from six years ago, episode 523, one of the first episodes that I made and one that's pretty close to my heart. We'll get back to Ivan Illich and the collapse of social power in just a minute, but firstly I'm disappointed this show hasn't gone out as I suggested on the 15th of October. That was due to various hardware problems, one computer failure and two hard disk corruptions simultaneously, so I don't know quite how that happened. But uh, here we are, I did get the show together, I had backups. Now next, a personal note, this is the first time I've taken a long holiday from Unwelcome Guests production. It was a spur-of-the-moment decision, I just felt like a break, as it was to take up the podcast again. But certainly... The emails that I received inquiring, was there going to be another show? Am I okay? I appreciate them all. So many thanks for your encouragement on that score. It was very helpful for me to have some time to think about what is Unwelcome Guests. And why do I continue to make this show? What is it about that that's important to me? And I came up with a number of new insights in my time for reflection... I hope that I can get some of them across to you in the shows to come. Maybe we're going to have a little bit of a change of emphasis. It's no secret that I've done a lot of research into the deep state. I've pulled those threads and tried to 
find out hidden levers of power, how that machine actually operates. And I've done my best to document that on Wikispooks. I've also taken the time away from unwelcome guests to improve the programming, the presentation of that information. So you may find that worth a visit. You may continue, if you're looking for more Deep State material, to check out wikispooks.com. You could also even become a member. Uh, You can edit the material yourself. It's all open source, open access. If you're a Deep State watcher, you may find it helpful to join up with other people with similar interests and you may find it also useful to contribute what you have to share. I think we will be still having a few shows on the Deep State where that becomes important. Uh, I think broadly speaking, if you're a regular Unwelcome Guests listener, you're probably pretty clued up about the Deep State, about how the corporate media serve them by dishing out fake narratives to deliberately misinform people, not just slightly wrong, but where possible, they try and invert 180 degrees so that victim becomes a victimizer and vice versa, that being a good way of hiding what's really going on. So it's kind of a conspiratorial view of history. I make no apology for that. A lot of people used to be very clear in the U.S., that conspiracies by small numbers of usually men were going on all the time. And only in recent decades, particularly since the CIA memo countering criticism of the Warren Commission report, have a lot of conscious efforts been made to try to stop people reflecting on the possibility that forces might be conspiring against them and their interests. So I'm very glad we focused on the deep state for some time and established certain understandings about what's really going on. But that having been said, in the future we're going to be having a wider range of topics on the show. When I first came across this show, I think it was about 2003, that was one of the points that really attracted me, the wide range of material and the way that Lynn Gary managed to tie it all together. Now at that time, fresh from a PhD in university, I was very ill-informed on the way the world really works. I had a lot of inherited myths which I hadn't actually thought about, and Lynn Gary's Unwelcome Guests really hit the spot for me. That's what I'm trying to do for another generation of listeners And that's one of the main reasons why I'm continuing to make this show. Now, I'm still impressed by Lynn Gary's efforts at turning out weekly shows for 10 years, 500 shows in all. Uh, I don't know if I can expect to follow that. On reflection, and with Lynn's canon of shows still available to provide education on a broad range of topics, I'm looking at producing more thoughtful shows, spending longer on each episode, so maybe once a month. That's not to say necessarily that the show will only be coming out once a month, because I'm in touch with a couple of unwelcome guests, listeners, who have expressed interest in producing their own episodes of unwelcome guests. Now, whilst you've come up with a lot of interesting material in the past... 
aside from the material, I've missed out on your reflections. So as another alternative to producing an entire show, a midpoint between just selecting material and making a two-hour episode, if you want to make a segment of the show, then that could be very helpful and could be included in a larger episode. And it might help me transition from full-time producer of this show to being part-time producer and part-time editor. You know, I live in Bangladesh and I don't meet many people face-to-face with whom I can share these sorts of ideas. And lacking that kind of impetus, I do sometimes wish that I had more of a collective, a team with which to work on the internet. So if that sounds attractive to you, the first step is to join the mailing list where we can discuss plans for moving forward in a slightly different direction in the future. So my expectation of that is that it will be informed by all the study we've done of the deep state, but probably not having that as the main topic. This is partly a case of diminishing returns. I think we've done enough on the deep state over the last couple of years. And partly I want something positive. I want something, when all said and done, these deep state leaders are actually only a small number of people, very, very small group, who, under the current setup, managed to amplify their decision-making capabilities and have these various ideologies and these technologies set up to, I think, trick a lot of people into carrying out wishes of the minority, the 0.0001%, say whilst almost everybody else in the world would like these things not to happen. And that brings us back to the topic of this show, wage slavery. I think it's a great phrase. I think if people came up with it nowadays, the corporate media wouldn't go near it with a barge pole because it's much too revealing. It sheds light on a reality that the global capitalist class would love to keep hidden. That is, that people can live lives like slaves, even if they are in fact earning a wage. We don't explicitly say in law, you must do what you're told to do and you'll be liable to punishment if you don't do it. So you're not a slave in that sense. You're a slave because you have an appetite and you need to feed yourself and you're in an environment where food is not freely available food is delivered by those who will be expecting money in return. Money can be produced out of thin air, but not by you, by the global financial wizards, as Smithy pointed out. So if you'd like to know more on that, you can look back at the Wizards of Money series. Just type that into your favourite search engine. So it's very definitely not a natural condition of Homo sapiens, but it does correspond to a lot of people's daily realities that they feel, well, I need money to live, especially adults living in cities in most parts of the world. This is their daily experience and has been the experience of their parents, their grandparents, perhaps going back hundreds of years the feeling that you must earn money in order to live. That's buttressed, of course, 
by a lot of ideology. And we have phrases such as cost of living, which have become part of the language, and so on. Now, where the wealth inequality is the most extreme, the ideology needs to be that much more extreme to maintain the difference, to help people to function with equanimity and not to stop and question what's going on. My mind is drawn somehow to the 5% of the world's population in the US who consume 25% or so of the world's resources. Now that's not to look at them as a homogenous group. There's huge wealth imbalance inside the US. That is just a reflection of the same ideology. Not an ideology based upon the physical attributes of the human being, which are more or less equal, but an ideology based upon this virtual quantity, which is referred to as money, which can get as unequal as humans will let it. And until human beings can break that connection, this person has a large amount, this person has none. In the resource world, this must entail a justifiable imbalance in the distribution. Till we break that link, then we're likely to face continued struggle from the majority of the population. And under the current system, it's getting a larger and larger majority who are effectively dispossessed. The increasing ranks of the global precariat who are allowed to struggle for access only to the minimum resources required to keep them serviceable for the money masters. As an indication of the growing proportion of the US population who belong to the global precariat, a survey of 5,000 Americans discovered that 62% of them had less than $1,000 in savings. And that was last year. And this year, 69% have less than $1,000 in savings. So this gives us another lens through which to look at the increasing militarization of the policing in the US. If respect and rights are afforded to people in proportion to economic matters, rather than saying you're a law-abiding member of the community, you deserve respect, is your share of the available land, you'd like some help with the house or some medical bills, you don't want you getting sick or being unhoused, so there you go. If it comes down to money, as with ever-increasing privatization, it's likely to do. That is the explicit aim of the people who would privatize everything. They say, well, when we approach things as a business, they get done more efficiently. And if we reduce these functions of government to financial matters only, then it looks like an ever-increasing proportion of the U.S. population are likely to be treated as a means to an end rather than as any kind of end in themselves. I think from that perspective, Ivan Illich's bold prediction about a sudden collapse of social power is perhaps not so surprising. Suggestion just being that if things keep going in this direction, an ever-sharpening of the disparity in wealth, less and less need for labour, more and more resources being 
spent not on actual productive activity, but on maintaining the inequality, ideological and technological resources. I think it was John Taylor Gatto years ago who pointed out that the most common profession in the U.S. was security guard. I haven't got the statistics at hand, but he was onto something. He could see the direction that the society was going in. Now, Ivan Illich, of course, doesn't in that quote talk about money at all. He talks about social power, which I find quite interesting. And my understanding is that his insights, and this is a man who thought a lot of this out for himself in the 1970s, Illich had a sort of pan-institutional analysis, and he certainly wrote a lot of inspiring books, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, he could see that it doesn't make sense to only talk about the money system. In the money system, yeah, it's a fiction. So how does it manage to capture people's imagination? Well, it wouldn't work if it didn't have backing from the legal system, if it didn't have the educational system to tell people exactly what they don't need to know about money and skip the essential points about where it comes from. And similarly, you know, the politicians nominally responsive to what people want. Why do they go along with creating and perpetuating the system of slavery for the masses because they're being manipulated. I mean, directly, in terms of bribes, it's easy to see, but ideologically, if they choose left or right, if we see politics as a one-dimensional spectrum, we're allowing our own imaginations, our ideas, to be channeled down paths. I mean, polar opposites, how best to get people to oppose other people than to say, you two hold opposite positions. It's a divide-and-conquer mechanism, but, uh, yeah, Illich avoids explicit discussion about money in that quote because it's a larger problem than that. If we go back into feudal times, money wasn't much of an issue for hardly any, hardly anybody. I mean, it was used for international-type trades. It was used for arms deals and various sort of kings plundering each other's treasury, but from a everyday perspective if you're a farmer then you didn't sell your food you grew it and you gave it to the lord who will protect you and it was divinely ordained and they had a whole system that didn't need money and because he was the lord and he was the son of the earlier lord and you knew that that was how it was going to work and some of this is lost on us because we seem to assume that the past worked the way the present worked money was everywhere well there was money, but issues such as um, who was the lord of the manor or dukes, earls. And the point is that the system of sort of class hierarchy in the UK hasn't actually been abolished. It's just been eclipsed as the money system took over, as redefining the relationships and deciding what was and what wasn't possible. And I think in the future, that's a possibility that we need to think about that the money system will keep going but will be eclipsed by alternative ways of organising. This episode is not called Abolishing the Money System. I don't anticipate that the powers that be, from their perspective, they don't see a problem with the money system. And a lot of problems such as the fact that it's not serving most of humanity or most of life, they would like to solve with violence and say, well, we have the army under our control, we're paying these guys handsomely, 
they're going to keep following our bidding. Or perhaps they're even planning further ahead and saying, well, we're going to control the whole lot of you with drones and automated technology which we physically possess. Well, if they try that approach, I think they're going to find the technology is not as reliable as they rather hoped. But uh, it's called abandoning the money system because I think it's going to be a grassroots approach, not even necessarily uh, a sort of altruistic exercise by people determined to serve the greater good. And that's an inspiring thought for me. It might just be a fact that more and more people decide increasingly I'm finding it very difficult to keep going in the money system. Quite practically, I'm not getting good food, I'm not getting good housing, it's not working for me. And if people can overcome the divide and conquer programming and team up, then potentially large numbers of people could abandon the money system. They can make alternative arrangements for living on this earth. As an illustration of just what you lose in terms of appreciating life on Earth, if money becomes such a major factor, I often cite the case of people asking, can we afford to save the environment? Would it cost us too much? And it shows, to my mind, just how people's thoughts are trapped. And that is going to come up again in this episode people because of their life experience and because that's buttressed by an ideology a lot of systems of thought all pointing in the one direction that we've got to keep this system running and because of that people in spite of their best efforts to try and think clearly about other things we could do end up mimicking this existing system my best illustration of that so we're not going to come back to this, but as a side comment, is Bitcoin. Bitcoin, effective technology in the sense of it's a globally accountable register that is going to be difficult for people to forge. A lot of people have been trying and haven't had great success. And yet, why do people enjoy it? Why do people use it? Because it works like money and therefore it's scarce. And therefore, if you've got a lot of money in the existing system, you can step into the world of Bitcoin. Certainly, so how much would you like? So although it's an advance, it's a step in the right direction, it maintains certain key problems of scarcity. I mean, also the problem of abstraction. It's a numerical calculation. It's not about the real world. And that, I think, is in one sense the beginning and the end of what this episode is about, that in order to escape wage slavery, in one sense, we as a group don't have to do anything much more complicated than just consider the natural world, return to the way of looking at the world that a child has, where a bank statement, a bank note, a passport, a gold certificate, at the end of the day is just a piece of paper that at some stage is going to get put into the soil and is going to rot. Therefore, if we want to really understand the world, we can't let that exercise such a control over our imaginations. And we're going to be coming back to this idea of looking at reality as it really is. And if we had an ability to do that, if we weren't looking through economically tinted spectacles, would people be quite so likely to cut corners with their safety precautions on nuclear power plants? Would we even have 
nuclear power plants if we were considering seven generations ahead I mean this is not a radically new idea far from it this is a Garden of Eden type idea before we had these institutions we had the real world and the real world is going to outlive these institutions with or without human beings these ideas that people have about nationalism patriotism fascism these ideas about land ownership interest-bearing debt derivatives currency speculation well these are human ideas but they don't have a meaning in the real world they have a meaning in our minds so much of which are carefully polluted carefully channeled by the banksters the money masters the deep politicians a very small number of people who sit atop large social hierarchies and this deception works uh, party politics says we've got to have a system of electoral politics that's reminiscent of the past so you need a representative and you're gonna to have to pick somebody from the list of course it's a free system you're able to get yourself represented you put yourself on the list pay some money to do that of course and as long as people find that they're choosing from a list then they're not really free to choose because if push comes to shove and it has done occasionally people do get their names rubbed off of that list in a multitude of different ways first one that springs to my mind is the Australian coup I think it was 1976 Gough Whitlam was slightly too independent-minded talking about do we need a CIA base in the Australia and his license to run the country was summarily revoked the Australian constitutional crisis Wikipedia addresses it up as something else that's party politics in law we've seen this there's one law for the rich and one for the poor so we have this judicial discretion sentencing and various ways to decide not to prosecute so that's the legal system certain people can be decided too big to jail don't think we're going to move on that one the wage slaves doesn't matter about their good intentions they never get to move on that case economics is too big to fail so we can't have that bank going down let's transfuse some cash we haven't got the licenses okay quick let's get the licenses let's get some politicians to sign off on this you as an individual well you're free to play the money game and within these laws that have been ready set down you're free to do what you like that's real freedom except it isn't real freedom because you're being harvested if you're using money you're paying a ground rent on their system because all that money is issued at interest so even if you think well I'm not paying the ground rent on it then you're supporting the system by proxy now that might be for example if you're a law-abiding citizen you're paying your taxes well then the government is paying the ground rent for you because where does a large slice of that tax money go straight back to the banksters oh that's the national debt do governments have to have national debts no certainly they don't I think there's one or two that don't uh, they're in the process of being rolled up by the global homogenization process which wants to destroy all oppositional models to encourage people of course this is how things are 
This is the only way things can be. One thing you're not allowed to do is to counterfeit money. It's their monopoly and you're taking on a big machine if you're trying to step outside that role. No, your role is to move these chips around and be glad if you end up with enough food on your plate at the end of the day. So this is a repeated story in multiple different domains. There is an illusion of freedom. People are given a choice, but it's like the choice of the student captain. You maybe get to choose what music is playing when you wander into the prom, where you choose what colour posters are going to be put on the wall. Should we have Coke or Pepsi for the after-school party? It's a fictional choice. The real decisions, the decisions that matter, are being taken elsewhere. These are decisions that frame goings-on so that abundance is suppressed wherever possible and scarcity maintains the illusion that competition is necessary. And like the Bank of International Settlements in Switzerland, the names of these places where these decisions are really taken, together with the identities of the people who make these decisions, firmly off the news agenda, so you're probably not even aware of what is going on. Now, Illich doesn't emphasise this, but I will. There is a story about there being powerful people up there, big guys who you don't want to mess with because these guys have power. And as long as enough people believe that, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I find it much more wholesome to try to understand and grasp the arguments put forward by Illich about the vacuousness of social power. I talk a lot about money. I say that's my particular focus. But legal power in Bangladesh there's a very well understood uh, difference between the law as it is written and the law as it is in practice. And I think this stems from colonialization, from a time basically when they didn't have much in the way of functional law. Suddenly, white overlords appear with guns who need to be satisfied that this country is going to run according to how they see that it should run and their motives are not entirely sort of mercenary. They do, a lot of them no doubt believe that they're instilling law and order for the good of the natives, and therefore go out about and set a system of high courts and officials and governors, put that structure in place, but perhaps attributing sort of fetishistic properties to this structure of rules and regulations, where the bottom line is that if it's a foreign concept to the majority of the people, then barring super enforcement technologies, there's always going to be a lot of difficulty getting people to follow it. So we have a nominal system of rules which applies somewhat inside of the city, local control, and then the rest of Bangladesh. These rules aren't particularly important unless they happen to catch the public imagination. I'm simplifying quite a lot, actually, but I don't think that that is such a different phenomenon. I don't think it's especially Bangladesh. David Graeber talked about how things outside of the capital, uh, that was Madagascar, I think. I think this is a fairly widespread phenomenon and an important one, one that is largely obscured to Western eyes, where there are alternate contrasting 
value systems, whether they're religious, cultural, whether they're in the language, then it's understood the sort of modern business techno project is one way to see the world, not the only way. If you've grown up in New York, you may think, well, yes, of course, this is how the world works because this is how they've decided it and that's one particular office and how everybody knows it and there are rules and everybody's going to follow the rules. Whereas for the majority of the world, things are not that simple. These powers of the powers that be are not so cut and dried. And I mean, the reality is that if the food supply runs short or electricity runs short in a colder country and it doesn't have to be a disaster of course to provoke a change in behavior perhaps because somebody puts some audio out there or a video posted on youtube enough people watch it and say that's a good idea i think we'll do that instead so a lot of these systems which would love to say that they're going to be here for good may not be here on a permanent basis what we can count on is a continued need for people to provide for their stomachs. Now, since the current system has been set up with centralization in mind, so to pick one important example, power generation, massive subsidies for nuclear power, these large, potentially disastrous things, which never actually were very efficient economically, if you look at the uh, environmental costs, when you factor that in, but yeah, minimal attention to things like solar power, wind power, decentralized power, which potentially, as far as serving people's needs, it's power exactly where you want it, wherever you happen to be, you can take it with you. So very helpful as far as people are concerned, therefore not helpful as far as centralization. Much better to have a single point of generation, tie everybody to the city through this, with wires, you've got something you can turn off. We're in that situation where the technology is now supporting the law, the economics, the politics. They're all working together in one ruthless hierarchical system. So the current systems that we have, food generation, delivery of people's basic survival, is not actually in the hands of the individuals because it wasn't designed that way. Now, as long as the system keeps running, then push doesn't come to shove. This might seem, well, this is a more efficient way of doing things, but it strikes me to be totally unnatural to have, I'm making this show on the 23rd story of a concrete building miles away from any food that I know is growing in a city of 25 million people. So if you think that is going to be in any sense, shape or form, a natural arrangement, then we've got different expectations about how life could and should be. I'm going to say the word should because it's a very unnatural experience and it doesn't feel as grounded as, say, the hypothetical Bangladesh village. I keep picking Bangladesh village because I go to a lot of Bangladesh villages. But, I mean, even... Uh, a situation if I were able to grow food here and if I were able to converse with the neighbours. Um, it's not necessarily only the physical living arrangements. They're the first things that spring to mind because they're easiest to see. But there's the psychology, the social arrangements 
and the city is not an area of community it's not an independent source of power it's centralized if you're living in the city then you're subject to the city's rules and that's exactly why china for example is still building these massive massive tower blocks in spite i think at last count they had about 60 million of these apartments ready for rent with people not buying them but they're still building them because it fits that control paradigm looked at from one perspective well this is lunacy looked at from an economic perspective this is common sense the fact that poor people might be getting increasingly angry might be getting increasingly hungry and homeless doesn't factor they don't have what economists refer to as effective demand so put another way this is all about providing for the few who are in charge of the system well given their assumption of self-interest we can't be too surprised but from the top of these large systems the perspective is quite different than from underneath for the canonical example of that consider the impact of homo sapiens from a non-human perspective if we were only slightly better at doing that i think human beings wouldn't be quite so heartily engaged in the eco side which is still going on but to summarize when we run according to money if people are wage slaves then they're not using their human capacities of empathy they are working less than human with for the most part predictably unhealthy results so the systems of the techno control project not only are they not designed to work harmoniously with the natural world they're not designed to work harmoniously with homo sapiens and are actually very inefficient at delivering these for example they're sending food enormous distances through lots of high technology very ill-advised if we think about a potential peak oil situation if we're looking at disruptions unprecedented and that's one of the things we see from this sort of hyper efficient organization of business the way to get the maximum profit is not necessarily the way to build a resilient system not necessarily a way to build a system that does anything that people want so the danger of organizing society as if it's one large business making machine is not visible from the top of the machine from the apex of the organizations then one is very distanced from the grassroots the discontent and the acts of god the disruptions which would appear to be as charles eisenstein predicts in his ascent of humanity increasingly manifesting and proving tricky for the great technological project of control so i'm back to the point that illich made that seeking power in the society is a vacuous concept compare that with for example seeking to provide healthy food for oneself and one's family and one's neighbors seeking to be on good terms with the people around one seeking to understand the local environment trying to make it less polluted make it more fruitful make it full of more harmony and these are nonsense words to the economic system 
and yet they speak to my heart, and they speak to the hearts of many people. In the wage slavery system, then this is just so much distraction from the bottom line, which can be calculated, optimized. We've seen a lot of where that system is going, and a lot of speakers on the show have been talking about that. So my focus here is what is this psychological process that's necessary for people to anticipate the changes, for people as a group to step forward into the new world. Now certainly communication and exchange of ideas is going to be a big part of that. Um, welcome to the internet, we have the technology for that. I think it was last week that the UK police charged a man with terrorism. One of his crimes was use of encryption. Now that didn't used to be a crime, but apparently according to the 2006 Prevention of Terrorism Act, it can be a crime if it's used for terrorist purposes. So that hangs a lot of legal weight upon who defines what a terrorist is. And perhaps you wouldn't be surprised to know if you've been following this show. Of course, you'll know that terrorism is not something that governments can do. It's something that's done by non-state actors, and that's one of the first parts of the definition. I think this was probably worked out in Jerusalem in 1979 or thereabouts, when deep state actors arranged how are we going to get round charges of people applying these laws to governments. So... It's perceived as a potential threat, this free exchange of ideas. But whilst we've got it, let's use it. So let me ask you personally, have you had enough of wage slavery? Where do you sit on this great debate? Do we need to have money? Do we need to have employees? Could we live healthier and happier lives than we do now without this type of contractual arrangement? and without the social hierarchies that go with it. Have we had enough of this? I personally feel like I never want to be a wage slave again. I haven't been a wage slave for very long, compared to a lot of people, and I can't imagine what it would be like to spend one's whole life as a wage slave. But then I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been a literal slave, shackled somewhere, with a grim future prospect ahead, and probably a head full of ideas about how my kind of creature was unworthy to do the decision-making and somehow divinely ordained to be following orders. Um, humanity was in that situation, and a combination of the slaves themselves and other people who could see that and empathise with that thought, let's not have this. Let's make a world without this. Have we got what it takes this generation? Can we say, we've had enough of wage slavery. We can see what it's doing to people, both the wage slaves and the oppressors, and what it's doing to the world. And we don't want this. Let's put an end to wage slavery before it puts an end to us. Another example of technology bringing abundance. But look at copyright. It's more or less possible to get not everything but but not far off there's a lot of material out there digitally which is accessible despite a lot of efforts by various copyright holders can we say yeah copyright worked in the past and did certain things 
now we're going to abandon it we're going to say information is just noughts and ones nobody pays for noughts and ones welcome to the world of digital and cultural abundance anybody who has access to a computer could we do that if you've had a legal school training in copyright law you probably think well no no that can't work for x and y and z reason and slavery remember literal slavery was god's ordained plan it talks about slaves in the bible it says obey your masters just as we had the divine right of kings just as we had the manifest destiny why else were these natives dropping dead of various diseases obviously it's a sign that the white man should take over their land and these are doctrines which we've had in the past which we've gone beyond why should anybody be in a position where they feel i really don't want to do this but i'm not going to get fed if i don't in a world which throws away half the food that gets produced how is that morally different from putting a gun to somebody's head and saying you're going to keep working otherwise i'm going to pull the trigger well the main difference that i can see is if there's one human being with a gun that's a person who's identifiable who has a conscious will to enforce that slavery whereas the system we have now is effective at disguising the responsibility this was written about very eloquently by steinbeck in grapes of wrath the way that economic forces force people off the land and there wasn't an identifiable agent of ill will it is a team effort it was a systemic process well would you be willing to hold a gun to somebody's head like that just for your own profit to force suffering on other people well are you willing to pay taxes to a government which does the same thing as national governments in the west are doing on mass they're using the money system they're using the legal system they're using various nominally free and independent systems which they have all set up there's no accident there and they're using all these systems to exploit the poor of the world and extract whatever value they can get away with the country's so-called poor tend to be lacking in armaments they can't fight back this is a bully system on an international scale but it operates under cover of these various ideologies that says well if you don't work you shan't eat and these are poor countries we're developed and educated so they need our help to develop their economies and so on and so on yada 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 it has an intellectual cover when it was going on in the 1960s and 70s this mass exportation of the development model building of schools and hospitals ivan ilich called this project a war on subsistence said this is not in aggregate going to improve people's well-being but exactly the reverse uh, he annoyed a lot of people 50 years later i think a lot more people are in a position to understand what he was talking about are we mature enough to be honest with ourselves and say yes i've heard those stories and yes i'm being paid to believe this my heart tells me different and that is all i need to know can we do that well obviously i think there is a possibility or i wouldn't be making this appeal but more than that i am really convinced that this older way of doing things has met its match if i'm hungry and cold 
then obtaining sufficient food and warmth is going to be very high on my list of priorities. But once I have some material comfort, quite quickly, it's going to become very important to me that I'm behaving in a way that is proper, in a way that I am content with. And how I treat other people is going to be very high on the list. Anybody who clings to, well, this is the system as we have it, this is what I'm sticking to, are, in the words of the great late Martin Luther King, on the wrong side of history. If we can say, as a species, we have done things differently in the past, we resolve to do things in a way that seems more harmonious, then let's do it. Some of the paralysis, some of why this hasn't happened yet, has been the failure to find a common voice. The different languages, the different contexts, the different local problems, I suggest we now see each other, we now see ourselves increasingly as one species occupying one planet. Previously, we've been stymied by our failure to articulate clearly enough what it is that people want. People were too parochial and too small-minded in what they aimed for. We demanded a good standard of living for Americans or Christians, never mind the infidels. We'd split the world up into us and them. We sought to turn it only to the convenience of Homo sapiens and thought that we could dispense with as many other life forms as we felt like. I think more and more people would agree we need, as far as we can manage it, to embrace the diversity, never mind of all people, but of all species on this planet. Even as they're delivering wage slavery, the globalists embrace the language of freedom because they know that it appeals to people, it speaks to their hearts. Why then do people continue to get tricked, end up working for money, not for love? What gives me hope that this can change one thing that I've seen in my lifetime, which has come, which I think is an essential part of the mix, is this ability, the internet, basically to communicate in real time about subjects. We've got software to change languages. That's not a barrier. And this communication is a baseline for a shared understanding. It doesn't necessarily follow, but I think it's that is the way that the world is going, and I think that is a reflection that we don't want a world full of other people who are scary, who are threatening, and who have other laws. That has been people's evolution in the past. Small bands of 150 or so people think like primates, and most of the world potentially quite scary and threatening. Can we beat our swords into plowshares? Have we had enough of weapons and war? We've a lot of issues, a lot of sides to this. We've looked at the importance of death, the importance of understanding. That was episode 726, why it has been in the past, these blood rituals, these sacrifices of the other people. I'm mixing in lots of topics here, but we've looked at so many different angles of this. And I think it's all summed up in this question, have we got the maturity, whether that's sort of intellectual, social emotional, spiritual, are we ready for a world in which we say 
wage slavery is not something that I want to be a part of. Applying the golden rule means even being a slave master is not acceptable to me. I'm not going to be part of a system where other people are compelled through needless scarcity to follow my orders. So I think that is what Illich is talking about when he talks about the vacuousness of power. So I don't talk about power. I say if I need to write this up on Wikispooks, I'll say these are people who occupy senior positions in the hierarchy. Potentially I could say these are influential people because of their social positions, but not calling these people powerful because we always have a choice till they invent a brain chip which effectively puts you under somebody else's literal control then any control that they feel they exercise over us is purely in our minds now i think it's time for me to play the media that i found i heard this a couple of weeks ago and i thought that that's a good point to bring out because i talk in largely uh, conditional terms, a subjunctive mood about the end of this social power. But I don't perhaps highlight often enough that, like, say, the toppling of a dictatorship or the collapse of a large structure subject to a lot of damage, although the end of this may be quite sudden and take only a short time every piece of damage that's done to the structure every time somebody stands up to oppression well that all adds up somewhere along the line and people are ongoing in their efforts to free themselves and free others from wage slavery the process is underway and assisted by developments in technology bringing abundance and putting like minds in touch I'm going to play you an adaptation of a video that I found about another straw on the camel's back. Now, this is a project that's liberated only a relatively small number of people from actual wage slavery and only a year at a time. But it's done so within the current money system. And it's done so by a larger number of people contributing money. So the people who set this project up are giving people a basic income and they're very clearly saying, well, this is not a raffle. This is not a lottery. You can put some money in and maybe you'll get some money out. They're very clear to not establish that connection. This is a gift that you may wish to give. And if you wish to, we will take some money and we will give it as a basic income to people. And we're going to be completely open about the accounts. It's an experiment by people whose vision of the future is a vision of abundance, not a vision of scarcity. Their vision of human nature primarily is of people who like to help other people, not people who are ruthless, not the psychopaths whose economic model is the one that I was taught at university, and they're still determined to try to force that as human nature. My heart tells me different, as does this video, a sign of the changes which I think are coming. And this was produced in June 2015 as a video. 
It's been seen by 50,000 people on YouTube. And thanks to the Unwelcome Guests Collective for contributing voices. It's entitled Money for Free by VPRO Backlight. And I will link to the original video from this show's webpage, unwelcomeguests.net slash 743. At this moment in various places around the world, experiments with handing out money for free are ongoing. You get it for free from people who feel it's time to break the current relationship between work and income. New ways must be found to share the world's wealth simply because in future there won't be enough jobs to go around. So we say, remove the link. Your income is guaranteed. And you'll see at the other end that all types of labor, paid or unpaid, will be much more equal and get much more attention. I don't think we need to wait for somebody in Washington, D.C. to decide that this is something that needs to happen or, or uh, Berlin or wherever the seat of your respective government may be. I think these are things we can start to work on just as we are today. We urgently need to find new ways to combat the growing inequality between rich and poor and to redistribute the wealth. So we decided to look for people who do experiments in pursuit of new solutions to major social problems. These people are like a new species. They can't be labelled as academics, journalists, politicians or activists. They are all of these at once. They don't wait for approval but simply go ahead with small-scale experiments. A young startup entrepreneur from Berlin decided to change his life. He stopped working for his own internet company and now receives a thousand euros a month from its profits. He regards this sum as his basic income. And this is Michael Bohmeyer, founder of Einkommen. I've never noticed how much pressure I was under until it was gone. I never noticed it until the pressure was gone. I was never a creative person. I wasn't a gifted speaker. But suddenly I can do those things. I have so many ideas that I can barely get them down on paper. I've truly become a new man. It's crazy. I feel so relieved and my health has improved a lot too. And then I thought, it will be the same for anyone. We should try this. So we need money to give to people for one year unconditionally. I have no money myself, so we'll do it through crowdfunding. Michael is starting up a crowdfunding project, and he calls it My Basic Income. The project aims to generate money to give people a basic income for one year. People go mindgrundingcommon.de and they can donate money through various payment options as much as they want. And they can join the sweepstake and register for the next raffle. It's two independent things. That's important. It's not a lottery. It's a raffle. You don't have to pay the first to join in. It's unconditional and that's important.